Right, good morning, everybody. Today we begin the God questions. We're going to be tackling some of the difficult questions that people often ask about God. And here's how we'll start this off today. There was a brilliant Christian philosopher who was standing in front of a classroom of Ivy League students who were from all different points on the religious continuum. There were some hardcore atheists there, there were some who were kind of agnostic, and there were some believers in the mix as well. And then uh, he writes, he begins by writing this question up on the chalkboard. Does God exist? Now, to make things interesting, he said, all right, here's how we're going to start this discussion. I'm going to ask you students to pick out any item in our world, and I'll use whatever item you select to build a case for the existence of God. And a student in the back row then yells out, chalk. The professor had been holding a piece of chalk. And he said, that piece of chalk that you're holding in your hand, I want you to use that uh, to build a case for the existence of God. And everybody clapped, thinking the professor had just been stumped. But he didn't miss a beat. He just said, excellent choice. Then he said, let's begin. Students, he said, does this chalk, in fact, exist? And it was dead silence. Nobody wanted to jump in and get hung out to dry right off the bat. So he said, does, does this chalk exist? Again, there's silence. He says, come on, guys. It's not a trick question. So finally, somebody calls out, yeah, I, I think it does exist. And the professor says, very good, I agree. This chalk does indeed exist. Then he said, now if this chalk did not exist, if in fact nothing at all existed, would that nothingness require an explanation? And the student said, no, no, it wouldn't. The professor chimed in, but as soon as something does exist, anything, even this piece of chalk, wouldn't you agree that there must be some sort of explanation for its existence? And all the students kind of cautiously nodded their heads. And the professor said, let's look at this piece of chalk very, very closely. He says, does it depend on anything else for its existence? Is this piece of chalk contingent, meaning that it could not exist like it does without the help of a whole string of other things that exist, such as limestone and water and air and white coloring and so on? Is this chalk contingent, he said, or might this chalk be non-contingent? Non-contingent meaning it's capable of creating itself and sustaining itself forever. So which is it, contingent or non-contingent? Everyone answered in unison, the chalk is contingent. Professor said, you're right. It needed help to be made informed. It won't always stay in this state. In fact, if we laid this piece of chalk out in the elements for a few weeks, it would begin to decay and deteriorate, as do all contingent commodities in our world, including, he added, human beings. If you don't believe me, he said, take a look at your parents' high school yearbook. And then he said, so let's summarize here. We have a piece of chalk that does indeed exist. Its mere existence requires an explanation of some kind, and we agree that it's a contingent substance. Then he said, now here is the million dollar question. He said, who or what is the explanation for this contingent piece of chalk? Who or what is the explanation for every other contingent substance that exists in this world? Rocks, rivers, trees, bananas, whatever it may be. And he said, to help with the answer to that question, and then he just held up a globe, like a regular kind of globe. And he said to the students, imagine a big hula hoop around this globe. They said, everything inside the hula hoop, everything inside the universe is a lot like this chalk. It's contingent. It was brought into existence by some other force. It depends on something else for its ongoing existence and it is slowly turning into non-existence. And he said slowly, 
as we begin to identify the reason or the explanation for this chalk and all the other contingent stuff in our universe, should we expect to find the explanation for all the stuff inside the hoop or outside the hoop? So now think about this for a moment. And a student called out from the back. He said, outside, it would have to come from outside the circle. Professor said, that's exactly right. And using our current set of definitions, whatever's outside the circle would be non-contingent, uncaused by anything else, totally self-reliant, powerful, and eternal. Then the professor said, students, whenever you use terms just like we did, non-contingent, uncaused by anything else, self-sufficient, powerful, eternal, those descriptors are usually reserved for a godlike power or God himself. So therefore, I think smart students should be of the position that there is at least a godlike power out there, a non-contingent force that brought about all the contingent stuff that we know. And he said, this piece of chalk proves it. Now the line of reasoning that he used in that class has generally been referred to as the cosmological argument for the existence of God, and it's a good one. It brings people to the logical conclusion that there is someone or something outside the circle that serves as the explanation for everything inside the circle. And when you list the necessary attributes of such a force, you wind up with a being that seems an awful lot like what a god would or should be like. Now admittedly, that argument only goes so far and it needs to be supported by other, other evidence for the existence of God. So let's keep going. Now the next line of reasoning I want us to ponder begins with a very powerful quote, uh, an unexpected quote, uh, coming from Charles Darwin himself. Darwin, the kingpin of evolution, the leading proponent of a world without a creator, a world that mysteriously exploded into being and then evolved slowly over billions of years with no plan and no force behind it and no guiding hand. And as you know, it's a very, very prevalent belief. Now I'm gonna give you that powerful quote in just a moment, but before I do, let's all take a look, a real quick look at this picture that you're about to see here. This is the human eye, the human eye. Now, by anybody's standards, the human eye is a marvel. It's made up of a hundred million cells. There are over four million special vision cones that fire information into the brain when any degree of light comes into it. And here's a little bit of trivia if you think you're pretty smart. Uh, you can whisper the answer to this question to the person who is sitting at least six feet away from you, correct? How many shades of color can a normal human eye distinguish? Take a guess. Some might say 100. Some might say 250. Know what the right answer is? 2.3 million. 2.3 million. No wonder my wife needs a dozen pairs of black shoes. Except she says, but they're not all black. That's black, and that's ebony, that's onyx, that's raven, that's midnight, that's obsidian. Okay, <laughs> all right. I know I'm just a silly boy seeing black. So there's 2.3 million colors. Men can see about six, but I digress. What do I know, okay? Our eyes have the most sophisticated autofocusing capability ever imagined. We can be sitting in a restaurant and in just a fraction of a second, reading a menu on a far wall, we can notice a subtle smile forming on the face of our dinner companion and then spot a bug in our salad. Friends, no man-made device can match the complexity and the sophistication of the human eye, which is obviously just one component of our marvelously designed bodies. Now, one day after studying the human eye, Mr. Darwin, in a moment of unusual candor, wrote these words. This is a direct quote. 
To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Friends, I think it's high time for thinking people everywhere to just simply confess the obvious. Wherever and whenever something manifests all the signs of intelligent design, whether it be the workings of a human eye, or a bird defying gravity and coasting across the sky, the wonder of spawning salmon soaring upstream like clockwork, or a giant redwood tree reaching for the sky, wherever and whenever we witness the wonder of intelligent design, I think we should all do something. I think we should flash the credentials of our intellectual sophistication and announce our suspicion that there's an intelligent designer behind all these intelligent designs. This has never seemed like a mindless leap of faith to me. In fact, it seems like there's kind of a duh factor. It just seems reasonable. Okay, you're looking at me now on your computer or your TV or your tablet or whatever, and this is all coming to you because of a phone just like this one that's pointed at me. Now, whenever something like this happens, I immediately suspect that a smart person designed all this, th these things. I don't ever attribute it to some kind of rando explosion in an electronics factory. I just don't, never have, and I never will, sorry. Whenever I see a jet hurtling across the sky at 500 miles an hour over my house, I suspect someone put some thought and effort into that magnificent aircraft. I never suspect that it emerged from an Amazonian swamp somewhere where it had been forming on its own, cooking and evolving over billions of years. Everywhere you look in this world, you see intelligent processes and designs, from photosynthesis in plants, to miraculously complex migrating patterns in birds, to astonishing breathing systems found in fish. I think intellectual integrity demands that we at least assume that every intelligent design involves an intelligent designer. Now, this line of thinking has historically been referred to as the teleological argument for the existence of God. Don't let the word scare you just simply points to the order, the sophistication, the wonder of our world, and it asks the question, who or what is most likely responsible for a universe as incredible as ours? There's an award-winning uh, philosopher named William Paley. He wrote this. He said, there simply cannot be design without a designer. There cannot be contrivance without a contriver. There simply cannot be order without deliberate choice. I think honest people must choose the option that our world's wonder is better explained by the work of an all-powerful creator designer than as an unexplained chance explosion of elements somewhere in deep space a billion years ago. Sooner or later, everyone has to come to a conclusion on this. Sooner or later, you've got to weigh the evidence and drive a stake in the ground about what you believe. Here's the position I'm taking on this, using my reasoning, my intellect. It would take such a huge leap of faith for me to attribute the wonders of our world to some kind of roll of the dice lottery-like randomness that happened eons ago. Friends, I'm telling you, I can't muster that much faith. Look at that human eye and tell me it's the result of randomness. If you can muster that much faith, then my hat is off to you, I can't. It takes a lot less faith for me to believe that a powerful designer God created all this and is responsible for it. We're going to look next at another line of reasoning, and this one is just a little bit more sobering. Back in the 1990s, I spent some time ministering on multiple trips to Haiti, serving the poorest country in the Eastern Hemisphere. 
Now, at one time, Haiti produced more exportable goods than any other island in the Caribbean. It could have been one of the most prosperous little nations in the entire world. But corruption in leadership and government over the years robbed the people and the land of just about everything good. Greed, and racism, and violence, and spiritual perversion destroyed that country. For a long time, even the humanitarian efforts of other nations couldn't even help because corrupt officials would intercept the supplies in the ports and keep it for themselves. The result? Men, women, children starving to death. And those that managed to survive lived in a world with no public education, no infrastructure, no running water or power in most of the country. But, but there are gated palaces up in the hills outside of Port-au-Prince. An elite minority prospered at the expense of the masses who never had a chance. Now, I don't want for a moment to diminish the suffering that's gone on over there, but I do want to pose a question about this. Why do right-thinking people get agitated by that? Let me ask the question another way. Where does the whole world get its sense of justice, or injustice for that matter? Its sense of fair play or foul play? Why is it that people from almost every tribe and culture in every corner of the planet, people tend to denounce oppression and get extremely upset when governments or individuals manifest cruelty or corruption or bigotry or greed or violence. It seems as though there is a moral code that's sewn right into the fabric of human beings. You probably know this. Anthropologists have been studying this for centuries. They all say in unison how absolutely uncanny it is, how much consistency there is throughout the human race with regard to its ethical intentionality, its sense of moral oughtness, if you will. In almost every culture, no matter where they are, what their history may be, loyalty is valued over betrayal, kindness over meanness, sobriety over inebriation, truth-telling over deceitfulness, and love over hate. The great British writer C.S. Lewis observed this phenomenon, and he attributed it to the fact that human beings are created in the image of God, and therefore have at their very core this sense of moral oughtness. Now, obviously, human beings, including me, don't always live up to that moral code, but it's there nonetheless. And Lewis argues that if human beings merely evolved from primeval gases, it is highly unlikely that all human beings would each manifest something as exquisite as a highly developed moral code. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about this. He said, this all points to a connection with a supreme moral being who is responsible for stamping that moral code on the life of all people. That quote comes from a little book called Mere Christianity. It was written decades ago, and thousands of people have read that little book about this moral code deal and wound up giving their lives to Jesus Christ as a result of the forcefulness of that logic. We've got to realize that this is evidence that we are created in the image of a just and righteous God who engineered in our DNA a sense of what's right and what's wrong, the ability to discern between justice and injustice, kindness and oppression love and hate. Again, people don't always live up to God's moral code. I don't, you probably don't either, unless you're perfect, but we're aware of it. We know when we're living in harmony with it, and we know when we're outside of it, and that's actually a blessing. So I think the cosmological argument is persuasive. I think the teleological argument is persuasive. I think the moral code argument is persuasive. But I want to talk about one more line of reasoning and this one can be difficult for some folks to hear. The Bible says in the book of Romans that deep down every single human being knows in his or her heart that there's a God. 
Here's how it goes in Romans 1, starting in verse 19. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So the Bible tells us that God doesn't just let the external world give clues about his existence. He takes personal responsibility for tapping on the heart of every single human being and revealing to each one the truth about his existence. It goes on to say what some people do with this knowledge of the presence of God. In verse 25 of Romans 1, it says that some people exchange the truth about God for a lie, a lie that he doesn't exist at all. So they take the external evidences for the existence of God, they take the internal revelation that's hardwired into them, then they close their eyes and their mind and their heart and their ears and they say, there is no God. Okay, now fasten your seatbelts because it doesn't stop there. Some people take it a step further and they walk around telling other people, are you crazy? There's no God. What are you thinking? And often it gets even darker than that. They go over to people and they say, why are you so weak that you have to make up some nonsense about a God in the sky so you can use him as a crutch during your bouts of despair? You poor, pitiful thing. They're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Now, there's a guy that I met who told about an interesting exchange he had with an agnostic neighbor. Uh, the neighbor found out that John was a Christian and he was surprised. And he said, really? You, a Christian? You don't seem like the type. And John says, I don't seem like the type. What do you mean? And the guy says, well, you're a reasonably normal and cool guy. It just kind of surprises me. Well, they laughed together about it. And John, in one of these epiphany moments, had the perfect comeback. He said, it's funny that you say that because I thought, you don't seem like the type. He goes, what do you mean I don't seem like the type? What type? He said, the type of person who would lie to themselves about the reality of God when the evidence for his existence is overwhelming said there must be a reason. Now, they developed the kind of friendship where they could speak bluntly with one another, but that neighbor just wouldn't budge for the longest time. But that was not the end of the story. Long time later, this neighbor shows up at church and John sees him there. And he says, you, you gotta be kidding. You were so uninterested, what happened? And the guy said, I have a very embarrassing admission to make. Uh, back when we were discussing the reality of the existence of God, he said, I was conducting myself in business in a way that I just knew was not honest. Deep down I knew if I admitted to myself the truth that there was a God, I was gonna to have to make some changes that I didn't wanna make. So he said, frankly, it was easier for me to lie to myself and lie to other people about the existence of God than it was to face the pain of making changes in my life that I didn't wanna make. It's amazing, isn't it? When it serves a person's self-interest, they will lie about the existence of the God who made them. We've probably all seen manifestations of this in some way or another. Rich people who deny the existence of God because they're afraid that God might want to say in how they manage their money. So they exchange the truth of God for a lie, just so God might stay away from their little pile of stuff. Could be lots of reasons for ignoring God, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So let me just ask you, could it be that you ignore God or keep him at arm's length because you're afraid of the implications of believing. Is self-interest causing you to exchange the truth of God for a lie? Let me be quick to say, there are some honest people who really do have legitimate questions about God, and those questions deserve to be asked. 
They deserve answers. And this is always going to be a safe place for honest people to ask honest questions about God. And we're going to be answering a lot of these questions in the weeks to come in this God Questions series. But I want to pull the curtain back on dishonesty for a moment, like the light of truth for just a moment here. Why would you, why would anyone exchange the truth of God for a lie? Are you trying to preserve or protect something? Your autonomy, your pride, your money? What has such a grip on you that you would exchange the truth of God for a lie? You know, maybe today is a day where you'd say, no more lying, that's it. I'm not gonna lie to myself or lie to others. This is gonna be about truth, so no more of that. The Bible says we're all gonna stand before God one day, and when we do, you're gonna be so glad that there was a time that you yielded to the reality of his existence and yielded your life to him. I just wanna say one more thing before we close. There is ample evidence that God is there. There's ample evidence that God is powerful. But you know what else the Bible says? God is good. He's good. He has good in mind for you. And he's not waiting to punish you or whack you because you've screwed up. We all have. We all have. God has paid an unbelievably high price so that we could be reconciled to him and become friends with God. That's what he wants. So God is there. God is powerful and God is good. And he wants to show his goodness to you if you'll let him. The psalmist wrote these great words. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's saying, ask him, ask him to reveal himself to you because he will. So here's my prayer. All of us, believers, skeptics, all of us, seek with all your heart. Make this the front burner issue of your life. Come back to the rest of the installments, installments of this God Questions series. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Bible tells us, seek and you will find. Think about that. Seek and you will find. So right at the end of this service today, once you take some time and seek him, he'll reveal himself to you. I believe he will. Now let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes, and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.